So Bill Early gave one of my favorite talks that I've ever found on YouTube. And as a result, now I try to um, take notes anytime I, I see him appear on a podcast or give another talk. Uh, the talk I'm referencing, it's in the archives. If you if you um, haven't already read my notes on it and watched the video, I definitely recommend just go to the archives and you can search for it. It's called Running Down a Dream, How to Succeed and Thrive in a Career You Love. But for today's podcast, he starts out um, with the, he's asked the question, like, how did you make your way in venture? And I actually include this in the, my notes because I think it's a great example of, uh, of lateral thinking. Like, how do you approach a problem? Uh, like, how do you solve a problem when your initial path is blocked out, blocked uh, from you? And so in his case, he's like, listen, I, I knew I wanted to go into venture capital. Um, and he knew that from a young age, even when he was in business school. So he says, it's actually an unusual story that exposes how much luck and random opportunity goes into these things. When I was in business school, I was told you couldn't just get into venture. It's vastly different today. He said, uh, I was told I'd had to go work for 20 years first. Then he talks about like why, before I tell you how he gets around this, he talks about like why he was so interested in it. And it came, uh, actually, um, it was a result that, one partially at least, uh, that his sister was an early employee at the computer company Compaq, which was huge, I think, in like the 90s. And he says, uh, as a result of his sister being an early employee at Compaq, he says, I got exposed to what it meant to have options, meaning stock options, and for a company to explode. So yeah, he runs into a dead end. He says, I ran into a dead end trying to get into VC. And this is where he exhibits like a, what I would call lateral thinking. He says, the second best thing was to become a sell-side analyst. Okay, so he's going to use this as a as a, like a side path into uh, his to reach his uh, his uh, his main goal. So he says, "I begged my way into a job at Credit Credit Suisse First Boston." So he's a sell side analyst there. He says, "This job allowed me to build a network with a bunch of different people." And then he says, "The legendary Frank Quatrone." I uh, linked to Frank's Wikipedia page if you want to learn more about him. But he says Frank Quatrone called me uh, one day and recruited me. Um, he said, so during this conversation, Bill's like, well, you know, I'll come work for you. But what I really want to do is I really want to get into venture. And so he says, uh, Frank says, if I came to work for him, he would move me to Silicon Valley and introduce me to every VC he knows. After that, uh, about 31 months later, Benchmark approached me with an offer that I couldn't refuse. So I think he worked for a different VC firm first. I think if I recall correctly, it was like 12 months are 18 months in one place and then like another 15 in another. Um, but so he, he worked for Frank for a little bit, then another VC company. And that, that total time was 31 months before he wind up uh, working at Benchmark where he's still today. So um, he's asked a question, which I always find fascinating because I've studied this, uh, like the history of financial booms and busts, like just for fun. Um, Cause I find it, I don't, for lack of a better word, fascinating. So he says, how has experiencing multiple booms and busts impacted your investing mentality? And so what I found so most interesting about uh, Bill's answer, which I'm about to tell you, is he starts off, he's like, well, I actually have multiple views on this subject. And so just remember that because I'm going to get to why you might have multiple views on many subjects with Bill, something Bill mentions later. So he says, I've read every book on the history of financial markets that I could. You could get tons of exposure to it if you just look for it. Silicon Valley is an interesting place because I've never been around a group of people where, where risk is forgotten so quickly. And then he talks about like, well, why is it that people can like, even though these booms and busts have happened throughout history, like, why are we so, so forgetful as a species? And he talks, he brought up something I never even heard described before. And I, I love the way he put, he puts this. So he says, each day as the market expands, people take on more and more risk, but they lose their aversion to risk very slowly. 
it is like a the boiled frog. So that old like uh, you know story about you throw a frog into hot water, it immediately jumps out. But if you put it into cool water and you boil it slowly and slowly, like he'll eventually die in there, not even realizing that uh, like resisting that incremental change in temperature, right over time. So he says over a five year period, your VC firm has taken on a tremendous amount of risk. But every day you just moved a little bit. So you never felt you were making this massive gap in risk exposure. And then what happens when markets bust, risk aversion comes on immediately overnight. Boom. So now he's going to explain. He's like, here's why I said I have multiple views on this subject. I spent a ton of time the past couple of years thinking about the cyclicality in venture markets. I was fortunate enough to spend time with the famous bond investor, Howard Marks. He asked me to explain my business. After I explained it, he said, your business sucks. Your business can't avoid, avoid cyclicality. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, he said, you always have boom and bust. You will ha- he said, you will have boom and bust cycles always. I think he is right. And he talks about like the difficulties in boom and bust in the venture cycle. So he says, venture is low barriers to entry and high barriers to exit. Again, I've never heard anybody else explain it this way. As markets start, uh, as, as markets start to boom, uh, the amount of capital that comes into the category is immense. So uh, you could argue that's what's happening right now. But when the market breaks, the capital doesn't have a mechanism to go away quickly because it's committed to these 10-year windows. Um, and then he talks about another thing that makes his job really hard is because like one investment or one year can, can account for the vast majority of returns. But you don't know what that investment is. And you don't know what that year is. And being too... Um, uh, cautious could actually be detrimental to your return. So he, he, he's going to explain this here. He says, the other thing I realize is the vast majority of the average returns over a multi-decade window are right at the end of the cycle, meaning right at the end of the boom. Okay. He says, you can get conservative and pull back and miss. So he uses the example of venture firms that pulled back funding. They said it's getting too hot in 1996. That we're not comfortable with this. And then they missed the run of 97, 98, 99. So they missed all the returns. But at the same time, if that so if that if that firm chose not to do it and they and they kept going through the run, let's say they waited all the way up until the 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 bust, then they don't get the returns either. So it's very difficult. Um, and I love this definition of risk for companies, and this is something I talk about in founders podcasts all the time. Like you have to be a good like it, the story. If if you're going to read all these biographies of entrepreneurs, like one thing you're going to learn is like they're not they they are very resourceful. They're not you could call them they're very frugal. They don't waste energy, time, and money. It's very um, almost opposite. Which, which, well, like we're in a bizarre world where you see a lot of these companies doing the opposite now, right? So he says, if you were to define risk, and it is arguable, arguable that you could, as the burn rates these companies have, well, the burn rates for some of these companies now are at two orders of magnitude higher than they were in the 99-2000 timeframe, referencing the, 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 the first internet uh, bubble, right? So this is if capital, and what happens if you have a shitty burn rate? If capital gets hard, that is going to be that is going to be a really interesting issue. So Bill Gurley's talked about this a lot. That he thinks that like there's no financial, there's not a lot of financial discipline happening. And why? Be, what's the title of the podcast? He's saying, in his opinion, um, that the the biggest problem right now is the the abundance of capital. And he's kind of hitting on that here. So if capital gets hard, this is going to be a really interesting issue. We haven't seen capital get hard in a long time. I love this next point. He says, I've come to believe that people get into more trouble by over-focusing on TAM, total adjustable, total adjustable market, 
uh, analysis, especially in these super early stage companies. So that's where he does most of his investing, really at the very beginning. And he gives an example of what happens if you focus too much on TAM. Uh, saying Uber should, he uses this one analyst that said, uh, you know, uh, in the early days of Uber, uh, saying Uber should only be valued at $5 billion based on the existing black car and taxi market. So that analyst thought, hey, um, if the entire market is X, you can say Uber is only going to capture um, a percentage of X. Well, then that's how you, then that's how you get a, um, like that's how you, you're overanalyzing the, the addressable market, not realizing that, um, that technologies usually, especially if you make something easier, in the case of Uber, definitely did, uh, all this other problems notwithstanding, uh, that's actually going to expand the total market. So analyzing what the market is now comparing to what it could be is a mistake is what he's telling us. And if you didn't um, know what TAM was, I've heard it also um, described as total available market. Some, some people say total adjustable market, but I think the, the point is still the same. Um, he gives another really uh, interesting example that I didn't know. And this all brings up to like his next point, which I'll get to in one second. But he says, in 1980, AT&T hired McKinsey to predict the number of cell phones there will be in 2000. McKinsey was off by 100x. So how could, first of all, you know, humans are terrible predictors of the future. Uh, what, how, like, why could they be off so high? And he, this is maybe my favorite thing he says in this entire podcast. He says, all too often, what I've seen is technology brings about an easier, simpler, cheaper solution, then there's a good chance that things could expand the market and blow things out of proportion, which you could argue happened in the smartphone market. Um, he's giving us some advice on how to be a good board member, be prepared, show up having read everything, be intimately aware of everything you were supposed to be aware of. I think this is Bill's advice for life in general. Just like there's no excuse not to know what you should, what you need to know. Speak less and younger people on board usually speak too much. You'll learn to change that behavior over time. So he's giving advice on the, the podcast hosts. Um, cause Harry, the, the host of this podcast has just been, uh, is on his first board and he's rather young. Um, and he also gives some more advice for Harry. He says, if you have an idea during a bird board meeting, write it down. Ask, ask yourself, does this need to be discussed right now? Or is this something I can just put in a note to the CEO after the meeting? Um, he references a book he recently read. He says in her, in her recent book, thinking in bets, making smarter decisions when you don't have all the facts, Annie Duke, the author had an interesting section that said in a partnership or a small group, uh, you come to know the weaknesses of everyone else. So that's interesting. Wait, he, so she says she had an interesting section that said in a partnership or small group, you come to know the weaknesses of everyone else. So he bring he was bringing that up because Benchmark has a, he I don't know much about the subject, but he says it has an unusual um, like uh, organization structure. It's like f I think five partners, and they go with like the majority. If the majority wants to f do the funding, they do. Um, so if you want to work in VC, and I would I would say this this applies to almost anything else. But he's saying specifically venture capital. He says, if you want to work in venture capital, you need to be passionate about being a venture capitalist. I think 20 years ago, there were more people that were passionate about it as a career choice. I think there are less today. And I think if you're reading between the lines, he's saying a lot of people are just doing it for the money or the perceived money today. That's why you see people like athletes and, and uh, like musicians become venture capitalists on the side. Um, they just want to make money. They don't actually really care. Uh, what do you think of the most challenging part of your role today? And so now he's going to get into it. He says, for the past five years, the most challenging part for me has been the abundance of capital. It is equal, equally mystifying to Howard Marks and from reading the, their commentary to Munger and Buffett. If interest, and this is so fascinating, if interest rates are negative, the model doesn't work. And he said, I forgot what it was, but it was like, I don't know, 10% of world GDP is, has negative interest rates. I forgot the exact 
percentage. I should have wrote it down, but unfortunately I didn't. Uh, there is so much peculiarity that is happening right now because of this of the massive amounts of capital. That's what I mean. We're in bizarre world right now. It raises strategic questions that have never been presented to boardrooms in the history of business. That's not a good place to be. Um, and then finally, uh, my his fa he talks about his favorite book, and I'll end on this. And this is definitely I'm gonna have to. Um, anytime you you find somebody you admire and they recommend, they limit it to like their absolute favorite book, uh, like Bill is going to do here. That's probably a good good uh, idea just to spend the time reading that book. And this also gets back to what I was mentioning earlier about like why are things so hard to predict? Like why, um, like we humans know less than we think we do, right? And he's talking about like he calls it a multivariable nonlinear system, um, and that's why he recommends this book because it, it gave him a fundamental understanding when he was like twenty five or twenty six years old. So let me just read this. Actually, I'm, I'm stepping all over my point here. I'll just read you Bill's words and I'll, I'll close on this. My favorite book is Complexity, The Emerging Science at the Edge of Order and Chaos by Mitchell Waldrop. It is about multivariable nonlinear systems. I read it when I was 25 or 26. It had a profound impact on how I see models, systems, economies, opportunities, and investments. Because most things in life are multivariable nonlinear systems. I would argue life itself is that. I have a pile of that book in my office and I give it out all the time.